You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Can the government shield information under the state secrets privilege, even when the information is not a secret at all? This week, the Supreme Court considered the case of Abu Zubaydah, the first war on terror detainee subjected to extensive torture by the CIA at a black site in Poland. His torture has been widely reported and even confirmed in a 2014 U.S. Senate report. The justices pointed this out again and again during the oral arguments. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. Everybody may know about this, you know, as, as you put it, it's no secret at all. But you don't have the United States government acknowledging that. Because it's not a state secret that he was tortured, the date he was tortured is not a state secret. The place may be. I mean, if everybody knows what you are uh, asserting privilege on, like what, what, what exactly is this privilege? I mean, maybe we should rename it or something. It's not a state secret's privilege anymore. Zubeda is trying to get testimony from two CIA psychologists for a Polish investigation into the torture, but the federal government has blocked the subpoenas on the grounds of national security. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, tell us about Abu Zubaydah, who's been held at Guantanamo Bay for almost 20 years. Abu Zubaydah was believed by the U.S. government, the CIA in particular, to be a high-level al-Qaeda official. And he was abducted in Pakistan back in March of 2002. And then he was taken to a black site in Poland. And a black site refers to a, a location where he was held outside of the jurisdiction of the U.S. courts for the purpose of interrogation. The interrogation involved something called enhanced interrogation techniques, which included waterboarding and other techniques, stress positions, being kept up, uh, sleep deprivation for literally days at a time. That, in effect, amounted to torture. So what is the issue in this case before the Supreme Court? Well, the issue involves an attempt by Abu Zubaydah's lawyers to subpoena two CIA contractors by the name of James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen. They're psychologists, and they were retained by the CIA to develop these enhanced interrogation techniques that were used against suspected members of al-Qaeda 
after the 9-11 terror attacks in an effort to obtain from them information regarding future terrorist attacks, the dates and locations of those attacks. And these witnesses are being subpoenaed to assist in a Polish criminal investigation involving, again, the use of these black sites being located in Poland and used to detain Abu Zubaydah and used to torture him pursuant to these enhanced interrogation techniques. So the government is claiming that this involves state secrets and national security. It's called a state secrets privilege, and it's a privilege that extends to the government. It permits the government to bar the disclosure of information if there is a, quote, reasonable danger, end quote, that such disclosure would expose military matters which in the interest of national security should not be divulged. Why is this torture even being considered a state secret? There have been countless news stories, books, a Senate report, even a movie about it. So that's the issue. So that's one of the important issues before the Supreme Court. And so it's no longer a secret. I think it's well known. In fact, the Polish government has admitted that its territory was used by the CIA for the purpose of detaining Abu Zubaydah and others. So the fact that it's public knowledge and it's not a state secret, does the state secrets privilege apply? And the government maintains that it does, even though, again, this information is well known, because if it was disclosed or if these individuals were permitted to testify in this Polish criminal investigation, it would confirm, it would actually confirm what is known. It would confirm that Poland was being used or permitted to be used by the United States government for establishing or using these black sites. So what was the main concern that you heard during oral arguments from the justices? Was there one in particular that stood out? Well, I think there were concerns expressed by several of the justices on exactly the point that this is no longer a state secret. This is a matter of public knowledge. This is well known. So the state secrets privilege should not apply. And so the justices really pressed the government lawyers on that point. And again, the government's response is, well, if these individuals are permitted to testify, it's going to confirm what is believed. And so right now it's kind of understood, but now this will make it a fact. It'll confirm that Poland was used by the CIA for these purposes. And the claim is further that this is going to undermine our relationship, the U.S. relationship with foreign allies, because, again, it was understood that when this black site was established, in Poland, that it would not be disclosed by the United States. And so this would undermine that agreement, and then therefore foreign governments would be less willing to cooperate with the United States on national security matters in the future. Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Gorsuch suggested that Abu Zubaydah testify himself about the torture. And there was a really tense exchange when the assistant solicitor general refused to give them an answer about whether the government would allow that. And I think some of the other justices were agitated as well, because here it's interesting, kind of going back to the fundamentals of the state secrets privilege, it's an attempt to reconcile two competing interests. So national security on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's the plaintiff's right to have his day in court, the right to provide a plaintiff an avenue of judicial relief. And so generally, national security trumps 
the plaintiff's right of a civil action, a civil remedy. But it seems that when this is a matter of public knowledge, that the national security interest is less compelling, substantially less compelling in that situation. And the plaintiff, again, should be permitted to pursue a judicial remedy. And to that point, Justices Stephen Breyer and Brett Kavanaugh asked some questions about his detention that were really beyond the scope of the issues in the case. We said you could hold people in Guantanamo. Uh, The words were active combat operations against Taliban fighters apparently are going on in Afghanistan. Well, they're not anymore. So so why is he there? Is the United States still engaged in hostilities for purposes of the AUMF against al-Qaeda and related terrorist organizations? That is the government's position. Well, this addresses a very important question, but it's a separate question, and it goes to the issue of pretrial detention, military detention. So Abu Zubaydah has been detained by the U.S. government since March of 2002. It's, it's almost been 20 years. He hasn't been charged with a crime, and the justification for his detention is that the United States is engaged in an armed conflict with al-Qaeda so-called war with al-Qaeda, and under the law of armed conflict, under the law of war, enemy combatants, the enemy, can be detained as a preventive measure to prevent them from taking up arms and returning to the battlefield and killing American soldiers. So here, now, in light of the fact that the leadership of al-Qaeda has been decimated, it's on the run, it's a very disorganized terrorist organization at this point, and furthermore, the U.S. has now withdrawn all of its military forces from Afghanistan. Can it still be said that the United States is involved in an armed conflict that justifies military detention? And if the answer to that question is no, there's no longer an armed conflict, then Abu Zubaydah should be released from detention. So there's been a habeas proceeding pending for the last 14 years. How long can they keep him? President Biden and others have talked about the forever war. Well, the thought was that the forever war had come to an end when American troops were withdrawn from Afghanistan. But the Biden administration is still maintaining that the United States is at war with al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. And therefore, suspected members, suspected members of al-Qaeda can continue to be held indefinitely. And I think that's very troublesome, more than troublesome. I think it's tragic because here the United States promotes itself as being a democracy based on the rule of law. Well, how can someone be held for approximately 20 years without criminal charges being filed against him and without being convicted of any crime? That just flies in the face of fundamental fairness. It flies in the face of due process. It flies in the face of the rule of law. So how do you think the court is going to rule here? To be honest with you, June, I wouldn't be surprised if they find some way to continue to recognize national security and the state secrets privilege. I just think that the courts, again, are very reluctant to second-guess the government's claim of national security. 
Again, they're not well positioned to make that determination. Is that even a justiciable issue for them? Is it a political question that they shouldn't be involved in? And then I think there's a pragmatic concern at the same time. If they say that the state secrets privilege doesn't apply here, then what's the precedent that that sets in future cases? Is it a slippery slope where now other plaintiffs are going to be able to introduce a trial evidence that implicates national security. So uh, I think if it's a ruling in favor of Abu Zubaydah, I think it's going to be a very, very narrow ruling. At the same time, I wouldn't be shocked if they come back and affirm the doctrine against Abu Zubaydah. This is just one of two state secrets cases that the Supreme Court is going to hear this term. Does that show that the justices want to, to maybe tighten the privilege I think so. I think so, because the facts now are are so extreme. Uh, Again, we're looking at individuals that have been held without trial, without criminal charges for over 20 years. And when they're attempting to challenge uh, their detention and seeking to use classified information to to uh, justify their release or justify some type of judicial remedy, uh, the state secrets privilege is raised every time to prevent that from happening. And in addition, with respect to the state secrets privilege, whether there's really a national security interest implicated, the courts are are not in a position to second guess the U.S. government's claim of, of national security. So the courts have been very deferential to the government's claim of state secrets. And so I think now the Supreme Court has, get, has become a little weary of that and concerned that it's being abused by the government in a way, again, that's just inconsistent with our constitutional values. Thanks, Jimmy. That's Jimmy Garule of Notre Dame Law School. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And with that, I would like to formally raise the flag and begin Boston Pride Week. The LGBT Pride flag is just one of the many flags that you may see flying over Boston City Hall. What you won't see is the flag of a Christian group called Camp Constitution. The city has refused to allow the group to display its flag, which features a red Christian cross on a blue background. The First Circuit Court of Appeals said that was okay, but the Supreme Court has decided to take another look at the case. My guest is Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School and director of the Notre Dame Program on Church, State, and Society. Rick, why do you think the justices took this case? Well, there's an old joke, but it's not really a joke, that the justices usually don't grant review if they're going to affirm. So my reading is that the justices, or at least a substantial number of the justices, believe that the decision below was inconsistent with the court's precedence on free speech in public forums and on the so-called government speech doctrine. So my prediction is that they took the case in order to correct the lower court's decision and to make clear that in a public forum, religious speech by private citizens is constitutionally protected. The Christian group's argument is that the flagpole is a designated public forum, so they have First Amendment rights. Tell us more about that. Obviously, the government owns a lot of property, and when we talk about government property, we're not just talking about land. The idea of a forum has been extended to all kinds of speech media, so it could include you know, a bulletin board or something like a flagpole, as we've seen here. And the court has developed doctrines over the last decades saying that once the government opens up space for private expression, it can't discriminate against private expression on the basis of the expression's viewpoint. So even though it's on public property and even though, you know, generally speaking, the government gets to manage its own property, once the government designates a space as being for the purpose of private speech, it then can't discriminate. And what the Christian group is saying here is that the exclusion of their flag from this designated forum, which was the flagpole display program, that that constituted discrimination against religious speech and that that kind of discrimination is not justified by the Establishment Clause and it's not permitted by the Free Exercise Clause. And what is Boston arguing in response to that? The other argument draws on the so-called government speech doctrine, and that is that when the government is speaking for itself, it's allowed to choose its own messages. So there have been cases, for example, when a group wanted to put up a religious symbol on public property, and they said, look, there's some other monuments on this property, like the Ten Commandments, so you know you can't discriminate against us. You have to allow our message to be there, too. And the court said, no, that wasn't a designated forum. That was the government speaking for itself. So this is the kind of thing that law professors love to write exams about. How do you distinguish between cases where the government is speaking for itself on its own behalf 
from cases where the government has just opened up space for private speech. So in this instance, the counterargument is that no, the decision about what to display on the flagpole, that's the government speaking for itself. Therefore, it's allowed to pick and choose, and it doesn't have to display religious speech if it doesn't want to. So it'll be a fun little exercise in deciphering Supreme Court doctrine and drawing fine distinctions. But the lower court had agreed with the government that this did not violate the Christian group's free speech rights. The Boston City flag includes the city seal, which features a Latin inscription that means, God be with us as he was with our fathers. Yeah. What's the distinction? Because the name of God is mentioned on our money, in our courtrooms. So where do they draw the line? The short answer is there isn't a line. As you point out, the government is permitted and does use religious terminology and symbols all the time. And the courts have made it pretty clear that the mere fact that the government does that doesn't violate the Establishment Clause. So, you know, the city of Los Angeles, which is named after Jesus's mother, doesn't have to change its name, nor does the city of Sacramento or the city of St. Augustine and so on. And lots of times there'll be historical seals and symbols that contain religious imagery. You know, there's the Ten Commandments on the wall of the Supreme Court room itself. There is no bright line test. In years past, what the court has asked in trying to decide whether the use of a symbol goes too far is whether the use of that symbol would be perceived by the reason person as the government's endorsing of religion. But there's been a lot of criticism of that endorsement approach because it also doesn't seem to have a bright line. I mean, what's the difference between acknowledging religion's role in our history on the one hand and endorsing it in a coercive or, um, you know, establishmentarian type way on the other? So the Boston flag, there have been lawsuits by various secularist groups or atheist groups that have tried to say that various cities' flags and seals are unconstitutional. Usually courts don't accept those challenges. Usually they they just defer to, you know, history and practice and so on. And you think that the First Circuit was incorrect in saying that it was government speech? Well, I'm, I'm guessing that a majority of the justices think it was incorrect. The court in recent years, with some exceptions, obviously, but the court has been pretty focused on enforcing free speech rules against government discrimination against religious speech. And the Supreme Court, generally speaking, has been very skeptical of government speech regulations. Now, again, there have been some exceptions, you know, involving uh, Texas's license plate program, for example. But on my reading of the tea leaves here, the Supreme Court is likely to say that the First Circuit got it wrong. So knowing what you know, why do you think the First Circuit didn't know that, seeing that the Supreme Court has expanded religious rights and especially yeah. now with the six-member conservative majority. Well, um, you know, in fairness to the First Circuit, uh, it's 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 reasonable to think that the the line, but that sometimes the line between a designated public forum and a uh, uh, government speech context is it is a fuzzy one, and reasonable minds can can sometimes disagree. Um, I do think that the First Circuit at present is. Um, you know, more attached to what we might call uh, separationist values when it comes to the Establishment Clause than the Supreme Court is. Um, you know, there's another there's another First Amendment case from the First Circuit that the court is hearing this term involving um, uh, public funding of kids who attend religious schools in the state of Maine, and that's a First Circuit decision too. So it could be that just, you know, there's a given how courts are made up at various points in time, that there actually is a slight difference in um, philosophy about what the Establishment Clause means between the two courts. But but I'm, I'm, I assume it's a good faith disagreement. I just 
think and am inclined to predict that the First Circuit is going to um, be overruled here. Tell us about the other First Circuit case. Yeah, it's a case called Carson. Um, I should disclose that I filed a brief in it, so I'm, I'm not neutral. <laughs> uh, but this is a case that is um, building on some decisions for the last few years when the court has held twice in the last several terms that governments, once they, once the government decides to allow um, public funding for various educational purposes, it can't discriminate against uh, uh, schools just because they're religious. It can't discriminate on the basis of religious status. So, um, you know, if you have a program that allows kids to use public funds to attend private schools, you can't single out religious schools for exclusion. That's the courts suggested that. And this, this case out of Maine is kind of an extension of that argument, where here the First Circuit said, well, Maine is not discriminating against schools simply because they're religious. It's not discriminating on the basis of their religious status. Instead, what Maine is doing is looking more closely at schools and trying to decide whether a particular school has um, is kind of pervasively religious, whether the money might be used for a religious purpose or whether um, uh, or for a religious use is the term that sometimes gets used. And uh, there, too, my, my own view is that the Supreme Court's going to say that, that the First Circuit did not correctly apply the Supreme Court's precedents. I think the justices are going to say that, look, once Maine decides that it's going to allow parents to use public funds to attend um, out-of-district schools, and, and Maine's been doing this for decades, um, they can't single out otherwise eligible, otherwise qualified religious schools for exclusion. I think they're going to really emphasize a kind of bright line rule that once you have a choice program, religious schools get to participate. And that'll be a significant development um, because there has been an expansion of interest in school choice, in part because of the pandemic and all the school closures. And it could be relevant to um, some states' charter school uh, programs and mechanisms. So I, I, I do feel like, again, this is an instance where the court, the fact that the court took the case suggests to me that they're going to overrule the First Circuit. And if they do, um, again, the results here could probably be more significant than the results in the flagpole case. I feel like it would be shocking if they didn't overrule the First Circuit in the main case. And I'm surprised that the First Circuit, looking at the way the Supreme Court has been handling different cases involving funding, like the playground case, why they didn't rule differently. Well, again, I, I, I do think there's a um, that the First Circuit judges are uh, a bit more inclined to a kind of a stricter separation view of, of how the First Amendment should work. And in fairness to them, um, the Supreme Court did say in the in the playground case you're talking about, that's called Trinity Lutheran, and in the more recent Montana case, the court did, the majority, um, invoke this distinction between discrimination on the basis of religious status as opposed to discrimination on the basis of religious use or activity. So the justices did make that distinction relevant. Now, there were some of the justices in concurring opinions, especially Justice Gorsuch, who said, well, that distinction doesn't make any sense. But the First Circuit did um, have, you know, it, it, it applied a distinction that the Supreme Court had itself invoked. Um, my own view is that it 
didn't apply it correctly, and I'm I'm also inclined to agree with Justice Gorsuch that the distinction doesn't make much sense. So this might the, the big news in the Carson case could be if the court um, says, look, um, we're not going to get in the, we're not going to get in the business of drawing um, hair splitting distinctions between religious status or schools that happen to actually also have religious content. We're just going to say you can't discriminate on the basis of religion once you open up a choice program. And that strikes me as um, kind of a more coherent approach, but obviously there'll be those who will say, no, the, um, you know, it can't, it can't be right that the free exercise clause requires the government to fund religious education. I think that was kind of the view that was underlying the first circuit's opinion, but here too, I mean, the, in both of these cases, although I think the first circuit will lose, they, there were, um, distinctions and doctrines in the Supreme Court's uh, decisions that that provided them a basis for the reasoning that they that they employed. What other cases involving religion is the court taking up this term? The one that comes to mind for me right away is there's a case involving uh, the execution procedures um, of a particular state where um, under the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which protects the religious exercise of prisoners, uh, the question is whether the uh, prison administrators can prevent a person's uh, pastor or spiritual advisor from um, being present in the room during uh, an execution uh, and also from um, uh, you know perhaps holding the person's hand or speaking uh, during the during the execution protocol. So, um, you know, the federal law and the free exercise clause, but uh, federal law in particular, says that if the government burdens a prisoner's free exercise of religion, that that burden has to be justified by a compelling state interest. And so there are kind of two legal questions in this execution case. One is whether it really burdens somebody's free exercise of religion um, to not have their pastor in the room or to not have the pastor touching or speaking. And then, the que- and then if that is a burden on religion, then the question is whether that burden is justified by the government's compelling interest in you know, safety and prison order and, and things like that. Thanks, Rick. That's Professor Richard Garnett of Notre Dame Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.